Glad you are here with us at Harvest this morning, or if you're visiting, we're so thankful that you would choose to spend your morning with us. And if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us that way as well. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And we are going to start a new series, a short series this morning. It'll be five weeks that's all centered around community. And then after that series, we'll dive into our next book or books that we're going to work through slowly um, before summer hits. But would you just all join me in prayer this morning as we both open God's word um, and we respond to his word together. Father, I thank you for your goodness to each of us in ways that have been seen and expressed. And in so many subtle ways, Lord, we, we have no idea. We've missed it over and over again, how faithful and how good you've been. We want to become more and more aware of the God that you are, what it means to live with you, to follow you, to reflect you. Would you help our eyes to see Christ this morning? Would you help us to have hearts that are soft by your spirit to respond to your words, Lord? We thank you that you do this in us as individuals, but you do this collectively as your church too. Would you help us to see one another as brother and sister this morning in this gathering, not only hearing your word for ourselves, but for others as well? We need your help, Lord. I need your help, God, for whatever reason, just feeling more nervous than normal, and I need your help to rely on you, that this is all about you and not about pleasing ears. So would you have your way in our midst, God, in your name, amen. So community, we, uh, you hear that word and probably each of us brings something to the table of baggage or delight Um, of ways that you've experienced community or that you haven't experienced community. And we'll probably be asking questions throughout this series of what is community? Why does it matter? What does the Bible have to say about community? How do we do it well? And maybe for some of my more introverted friends, do I really have to? And the answer is yes. (laughs) But it looks different. And The overarching idea for this series will be that we are created for gospel community. We're saved into the gospel community, and we're seeking gospel transformation in communities. And when we say gospel, we want you to think about good news, the good news of God's kingdom where Jesus reigns as Lord and King. And when we say community, this isn't just a series about the ins and outs and the how-tos of community groups, even though we're excited about community groups and we're kicking those off this January, we could not have this little cross-section of peoples gathering together in homes and title it community groups, and community would still be essential to the church. For better or worse, actually, we all have communities somewhere in our lives, or in multiple places, and we're shaped by those communities as well. How I've been thinking about community is like these concentric circles, or really thinking about this gospel community, or these concentric circles that at the center, at the core of true community as God intends, there is communion with God. 
in any community that we experience or we participate in out of that should be an overflow for God's people, starting with our communion with God. And then from there, one of the closest, if not the closest community we should have as believers is with one another. Like the Bible makes this clear over and over again. When we are in Christ, the way that we view one another is drastically different to have those titles of brother and sister. That the local gathering of believers, the church, deeply, deeply matters to the community and the life of the believer that wants to be in a gospel community. But from there, we have other communities too. We have the community of our families, the people that we live with, that we share space with. Or you think of maybe some that have roommates, the people that you live with in that proximity. Then we have like our local community. We have Camas, or we have Washugal, or Vancouver, or we have the school that we go to, or we have our neighbors that live on our street in that community. We have the grocery store that we go to, and the barista, and the coffee shop that we see on a regular basis. We have a local community that spreads a bit further. What does it look like for that to be a community about good news as well? And then we have community globally, which may sound weird, and we'll flesh that out as the series goes on, but Jesus says to his own believers right before he ascends to heaven, now go to the ends of the earth. Tell the nations about who I am, teaching them everything that I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and know that I'm with you always to the very end of the age, that the good news is for here locally, but the good news is also to go out globally. If we're to seek communities to be transformed by the gospel, it is both near and far. Each week, we'll be seeing that gospel community isn't simply just a Christian hangout even though it's super fun and it's great to hang out with other Christians. But because of the power of the good news at work in our midst, through God's word, by his spirit, and often administered through his people, we want to view and practice community through these five lenses. Lens number one, what we're diving into this morning, that community, we want to see community as testimony. Lens two, community as sanctification and healing. Community as mission. Community as resistance. And community as rhythm. And so that's the five weeks that we'll be walking through together. But here we go into week number one, community as testimony. And where do we need to start as we need to think about this story that we have, the opportunity to tell as a community Well, it's always good to go back to the beginning, to Genesis, to origins, to the beginnings of everything that God sets into motion. Because community isn't simply something we we participate in, it's something we were created for. God in the garden and during creation, we see him bring the sun, the moon, and stars, and plants, and vegetation, and animals, and planets, and solar systems, and then finally mankind into existence. And over and over again, as we read Genesis 1, we see God say, and it was good at the conclusion of each day. But then as we get more to like ground level view in Genesis 2, 
for the first time we see God say something isn't good. Let's look at Genesis 2.18. God has just made mankind, and he's placed Adam in the garden. And God says this, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. Now, not good to be alone. For those of us here that are like, wait, I really like being alone at times, right? Isolation to a degree has its own place also. Jesus himself went off to be alone with his father, right? So we're not saying all forms of alone are bad, but in this specific circumstance, it is just Adam in the garden. And God looks at that. And even though his presence is full in all of creation, God says, I will create more humans. I will create a companion for Adam. I will create Eve. And so we see that. God creates woman. Now together they form a family, a community, a community that's centered on their trust in God's rule, reign, and blessing. And God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. This community ultimately is going to spread throughout all of creation. He tells them to subdue the earth, bring everything in creation under God's rule and reign with him being at the center of it all, that this community is going to spread. But we know how the story goes. Sin, brokenness, death enter the picture. But it remains true that humanity was created for a community with God at the center and with one another. We talked a couple months ago about this epidemic of loneliness that our nation and probably our world has experienced, which really, as I think about it more and more, it's like this check engine light for humanity of going, something is off, something is wrong. I feel like there's more. I was created for more than this. This isolation or this loneliness, I think, is crying out, trying to point us to God made us to be in a community where he's at the center. But even though each of us has desires and longings for community, not all those desires and longings are good because sin has its way with our desires and our longings for community as well. If we fast forward to Genesis 11, we see a group of people who have banded together towards a common goal to create this tower called the Tower of Babel. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This community, this group of people that comes together, it's a community that instead of wanting to subdue the earth and bring things under God's authority and rule, they want to make a name for themselves. There's even this image of this tower that they want to build. They don't want to come under God's authority. They want to rival God's authority. They want, to say, they want to try to subdue heaven and bring it under their control so that they may have a name for themselves. But God confuses their language if you continue reading the story and ultimately scatters them over the whole face of the earth. 
And I think throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, there's this longing of, will there be a way for peoples of all different backgrounds to be brought together in unity again, but not unity in rebellion against God, unity in following him, trusting him, making him their center. Is this possible? But if you keep reading from this point forward, people continue to band together over things that take the place of worship of God. And their desire for this true community only increases, though. And I feel like we know this, right? We know what it's like to search for commonality with others. We know what it's like to want to have a place to belong or to want to be known or to have a group or to have a people. We do this when we find a sports team that we like. And then all of us band together to cheer for them. That I could be out in public at a Walmart and some random person sees me wearing Packers gear and they say, go Pack, go. And I'm like, you get me. (laughs) And they don't at all. (laughs) But there's this weird little thing that we've found in common and now we have this unity together. That we form community over hobbies, things that we like. We form communities over causes that social media in a lot of ways was a way to try and get people to connect. There were definitely ulterior motives as well, but it's what we tried, at least in the beginning, to use it for, to connect with people we hadn't seen in a while, to keep up to date with people in our lives, to feel this sense of community. And those desires are good, and and yet also they can be misleading to think that this thing or this team or this group will ultimately fulfill all these deep senses of longing that I have. But we've also seen people band together similar to the Tower of Babel, not because of things that they're for, but things that they're actually against. That sin has so had its way with these desires that people have gathered together because of things that what they have in common are things that they hate. In the early 2000s, the anti-fan club was born. I found as I was looking into this, and so anti-fan club, right? There are groups of people that are fan clubs where they gather around, whether it's a celebrity and now you're a Swifty, or it's like a team, or it's like a movie, or there's a fan club for it and a following, and they gather together to discuss those things, to focus on those things. Well, in the early 2000s, there was this trend of the anti-fan club. And as I was looking into this, I found a 2006 New York Times article that otherwise I never would have found in my life because the, one of the earliest anti-fan clubs that was born was the Rachel Ray Sucks Community. Like, I'm not kidding. That is what they called themselves and that they called it a community. And so that caught my eye. And if you don't know, Rachel Ray is like a, I think, TV chef, like personality of, of some kind. Um, never was really watching. But I read through this article, and it's going through how they spend their time together. They don't gather in person, I don't think, but over a thousand people that are gathering, gathering together online on a regular basis to talk about Rachel Ray. Here's some of the things that they do. They criticize her cooking skills. This one is unbelievable and so funny to me. Her over-reliance on chicken stock. (laughs) Like, 
Who would have thought that's like a sentence? <laughs> her kitchen hygiene, her voice, her mannerisms, her clothes, her penchant for saying yummo. And while to a degree this is funny, I actually intentionally left out some other things that they talk about too. Because this is deeply sad as well. Because Rachel Ray is a person. She's someone created in the image of God, just like the rest of our celebrities that somehow we like to elevate to a high status but dehumanize and lower them to a low status. And then we think we can do that with one another as well at times. Elevate ourselves or each other to a high status or dehumanize one another to a status that we think is worthy. And also why it's sad is this isn't as bad as it gets for anti-fan clubs. There are people that have banded together because of their hate for a whole people group, for religious beliefs, for hating political views, for hating people because of the color of their skin or how they talk. This leads to violence. It's led to wars. It's brought about death. Brokenness spreads. And we see the same story in the Bible as well. That people band together, ultimately in rebellion against God, instead of allegiance to him. That actually the group of people that wanted Jesus killed would have never come together otherwise if not all having the same goal to kill Jesus. We can have very warped views of community. But throughout this same story, throughout Scripture, God over and over again is forming a people, a new humanity, a new community that follows his ways and reflects what he's like to the world. And I think we feel this tension as believers. We have these deep desires and longings for community of knowing that we were created for more, but we also, coinciding with it, have these fears of, but what if I'm truly known in that space and I'm rejected? What if I'm not loved? What if I put myself out there and nobody cares that I'm even there? We also know what it's like to put our hope in a friend group, in a family, in a political party, in our kids' sports team, thinking that that group might somehow be the answer to our happiness, to our loneliness, to our idea of life to the full. And yet time and time again, we're let down. The party ends, families fight, the sports event or season comes to a close. And we have to come to grips with that community on its own cannot save us. We are not saved by community. We need a savior. But one of the beautiful things about our savior is that he saves us to himself and he saves us into his family, into his community where God is at the center. And when Jesus, this Savior, comes onto the scene, people are drawn to him, and they are drawn to community. We see Jesus meeting in people's homes regularly, around a table, inviting people to come and follow him. 
And we see a community start to form. That as Jesus saves people, he saves them from sin, from darkness and brokenness, but he saves them into a family, a new way of living, into a community where he's at the center. And we see this in Mark chapter 5. So let's turn there together. And this story, like, if we were working through Mark 5, this would be one. If we were going verse by verse, unpacking it all, I'd say, Greg, you take that one. That sounds great. Because Mark 5, there's a lot going on here. So there will be things that we, we don't dive into, and there will probably be questions that you have about this passage that we're going to read because we are about to be confronted with deep spiritual brokenness, darkness, and evil. But thankfully, we see even as the readers that Jesus is unafraid of confronting this evil. So let's start. Mark 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is deep darkness and evil. Unbelievable isolation. That this man's interactions with people are limited to them either running away from him or trying to subdue him restrain him. Like, can you even imagine for an instant what that would be like if that was your only interactions with other human beings? But here, this man is confronted with the Savior. He's confronted with Jesus. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, For we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So like I said, there's a lot going on here. A community of evil exists in this man. When Jesus asks him his name, we don't get the response simply of the man, but we get the response of a community of evil hell-bent on rebellion against God, that we are legion. And Jesus is unaffected 
earlier in the first five verses we read, it actually doesn't allude much to that there is some sort of spiritual darkness that exists in this man, but Jesus sees right through it. He sees the actual problem and knows what needs to be confronted. He does not run. He does not try to restrain. But when evil of this magnitude is confronted with the living God where everyone else runs, evil sent packing. And we see that as Jesus comes across great evil over and over again, Jesus sends them packing. It even reminded me back to the Tower of Babel that there is this community of rebellion against God, but when they try to come up against God himself, God sends them packing. He scatters them. You cannot come up against the living God and win. That as dark and as evil as things may seem, as broken as things may be, over and over again, what Scripture tells us is that our God is stronger. Our God is more powerful. Our God is more able. That evil itself cannot withstand. A legion of evil cannot beat Jesus. We see the power that Jesus has to destroy this union of, with evil that this man has. And the power and the compassion to rip him out of that state of being and bring him into his right mind. And people have no category for it. They don't understand it when they see him. They're more afraid than anything of like, how is this possible? This is always the way it's been with this man's life. And while there's a lot I don't relate to in this man's story like that, I never went through anything quite like that. My guess is for myself and many of us here, there's a lot I do relate to with this man's story. And my life before Jesus was riddled with evil, riddled with communities that were all about rebellion against God. I didn't have a category for it then like that, but as I look back now, just seeing every way I tried to squash God's authority in my life and tried to live under Matt's rule and reign. But when I was confronted with Jesus, he had the power to stop my union with evil. And he had the grace and the mercy to rip me out of that and bring him face to face with my Savior in my right mind. And my guess is for many of us here, that is your story as well. But what Jesus does next in this, how this story wraps up, is really what I want us to see because it's something that should catch our attention and throw us off. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. 
if we had been reading Mark to this point, or if we've read the other Gospels, this should catch us off guard because over and over again, we see Jesus invite people to follow him or people drop everything that they're doing to follow Jesus and whole crowds of people after he feeds the 5,000 or after he performs some miraculous sign will leave what they're doing to follow Jesus. But here's a man who was possessed with a legion of demons. They're cast out. He says, let me follow you physically, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. Go home and tell them what I've done for you. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Share your testimony of God's mercy. And can you imagine, for one, what that was like for him in that moment to hear that? To hear that he has to go home to the people that probably know him best people that saw this whole cycle in his life start to take off this trajectory, people that he's hurt, people that he's wronged, and now Jesus is saying, go home and tell them about God's mercy. And this man does it. We don't know if he was just so elated that he sprinted to Decapolis. It was a journey to tell everyone if there was a wrestling match, like I think of the prodigal on the way back home to the father of this like, man, if I go home, maybe I just like try to make all these amends first or does he just start proclaiming God's mercy? We don't know, but he goes and the people are amazed. And we actually see that Jesus later, he journeys to Decapolis and multiple gospels point this out. And I don't know the exact timeline of all of the events, but we see that in Decapolis, People are responsive to Jesus. Jesus performs great acts of healing, miracles, and then numbers of people end up following him. And I recently heard a pastor named Tyler Staten talk about how I wonder, or he wonders, could it be that this man's testimony as he went back home softened the hearts of this city, of his community, so that they were more receptive and responsive to Christ? Jesus sees the potential for a community to be changed through the testimony of what God has done. My guess is there was deep healing for this man in doing that, but there was deep healing for this community as well as he goes home and proclaims what God has done. This was a place that was most likely riddled with shades of his now past life and broken relationships, and yet Jesus says, yes, go there and tell them about what the Lord has done for you. There is something to be said about our testimony and community when we stay for the long haul, which is really hard, because like this man, we're broken people. We hurt each other. But there is a story that we can tell about God's goodness when we stick together through the thick and thin. When we continue to ask Jesus to work and redeem broken situations. I'm not saying there's never a time to not leave, but we see power in testimony when this man stays. But maybe some of you are confused like I was when I read this. Let's go back to the concentric circles because this man now has like 
given his life to Jesus, it looks like, or at least has this belief in Jesus, has this communion with God. But it's like he's jumping over that first circle of community in Christ to community and family and community locally. Like, isn't he now saved into this kind of community where he should be with Jesus and these other followers? And I don't know all the reasons that Jesus sends him home, but my guess is, my best guess, is that Jesus, through this man's testimony, is going to make his local community, his family, that will be, through his testimony, this Christian community that he now experiences as Jesus continues to move and draw people to himself through the gospel. And Jesus wants to use this man to have that spread in Decapolis. Because at every level... We need testimony about who Jesus is. When we gather together as a church, the testimony of who our God is and how he's worked in our lives should be evident. When we gather with our families, there is opportunity for testimony about who our God is. In our local communities, there are opportunities. Globally, there are opportunities to see our communities transformed because of the gospel. When we gather here on Sundays or in community groups or when we grab coffee together, are we in the constant practice of both proclaiming and asking one another, how has God been at work in your life? Like, is that just a question we're excited to ask one another? Or when we hear someone sharing, do we ask them, how do you see God at work in that? to hear them peel back the layers and hear the testimony of our God's work in an individual's life. That should be something that excites us, right? That should be something that we desire here. And we as staff and elders, we long to hear your stories of how God has been at work in your individual lives as well. We would love it if there were more people that are up front proclaiming to our brothers and sisters how God has helped been at work in their lives. We would love to make space for that. But sometimes it just doesn't happen up front. When we sing together, we're singing not just with our mouths, but we're singing with our hearts so that the lyrics on the screen are a testimony. Because when we're declaring that nothing compares to you, when we sing out Hosanna, it's not just because we read it up there Our hearts are saying, yes, this is true about God. He is the one who saves. He's the one who ripped me out of the grave and brought me into life with him. That's what we're doing when we sing. We're testifying to one another. We can step back and even stop singing for a second to hear the testimonies of 100 plus people in a room saying, this is true about our God. That encourages us, that causes us to seek Jesus. And even for some of us that look at the screen and see those words and we're like, I don't know if I can sing that because I don't know if that's true for me. We hear our brothers and sisters singing and we go, God, would you help that to be true in my heart and in my life as well? That's what we're doing. It's not a concert. It would be a really lame concert. There's other churches that do it way better. (laughs) But we're testifying. But our testimony is not only for our Christian community. While it is important, it's needed here. Because we are called to be witnesses as far as the ends of the world. 
but also as close as our homes, our families, our workplace, our neighbors, our school, that sporting event that you either are a competitor in or you're a parent or an onlooker watching. We're called to be witnesses there. When I started following Jesus, I really wrestled. I was 20 years old, and I had all these other like communities in my life that I, I'd spent a lot of time in, friendships, and I was going to community college at Mount Hood and Gresham, and I was working for a hardwood floor company, and I would party a lot uh, back then before Jesus. And then I come face to face with Christ, and I start following him, and everything's radically different. And I just want to proclaim that this, like, no, what you need is Jesus. And yet, over and over again, as I wrestled with God, how do I do this well? And is there a way to do this? And it's not just totally weird. Like, anyone else wrestle with that? <laughs> like, you're just like, is there a way, God, for this not to be weird and natural as I want to talk to people about you or I want to reflect what you're like? During that process and the rest of my life, and I hope you hear, like, I'm not that old. I'm 33. I hope you hear this from a place of humility. Like, when I preach, the same is true for Greg. When we are talking to you, we don't view ourselves as the expert on all the subject matter. We view ourselves as people right in the front row needing to learn from our Jesus and to grow. And for me, even last night, as I was doing a run through this, I'm like, God, would you just help me to grow in these things? Because I stink. (laughs) I just stink. And he has been faithful. And he's faithful with each of you, too, to grow you. Like, none of this is to be like, hey, start doing better, church. Hey, let's grow together in these things. This whole series on community. But here are four lessons that God has taught me and has continued to teach me. The first one is this, and it's not on the screen because it was one that hit me last night. People are always watching. What story are we telling? And I'm not just talking about people out there in the grocery line or as you're going through a drive-through, or, but I'm talking about first and foremost something that I've been convicted of this week is in our own homes with the people that we live with that maybe we're most comfortable with and that know us best, what story are we telling there? Because this week for me, I was woken up at 2 a.m., at 4 a.m., 1.30 throughout the course of the week by my dog vomiting in our room. And Kat woke up too. And when I had to get up and clean it off the ground, and sometimes it hit the rug, sometimes it didn't. Uh, I told a story to my wife and how I handled that situation. Because I was really angry every time. I, uh, I was impatient. And it was all about how this was impacting Matt. How dare you vomit in my room, dog? This takes at least 15 minutes of sleep. I'm never getting back. How dare you not do everything I want you to do all the time? I'm the authority here, dog. You don't puke in my house. And that may seem silly, but as I was frustrated, as I was angry, 
I'm communicating to something about my something to my wife about what story I'm choosing to believe in in that moment. Because couldn't I have been like my servant Jesus who gets down and washes feet? Who became the least of these? Who didn't see things as interruptions but saw them as opportunities to proclaim the kingdom? And whether it's a dog or something else, we have a lot of opportunities in our homes when we're asked to do something that we don't want to do, when our spouse does something that hurts us or that gets under our skin, when our brothers or sisters take the thing that we were playing with or change the channel of what we were watching or start gossiping about our parents, we have opportunities to tell a different story in those moments, a testimony of what our God is like. I need to grow there. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I, sorry, Jonah, I skipped over a passage earlier in 2 Peter, and both at 2 Peter chapter 2 and Romans 12, there's just so many shades of that story in Mark that we read of, man, because of the mercy you've received, Come to your right sense of living and being like this man did where now he's in his right mind and he's totally transformed and let that transform the communities that you're in. And Paul in Romans is saying, take every thought captive, every way that we are not in alignment with the kingdom. Let's no longer conform to that way of living and how the rest of the world says that we should rebel against God, but let's bring everything under the authority of making God the center of every decision, every choice, every feeling, every response that we have. And that is huge, but that's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to apprentice under Jesus, who says, for man, this is not possible. But with me, with God, it's possible. Second lesson. We need new eyes to see how God is already at work in our communities. When I was at community college at Mount Hood, there was a class that I really remember not liking. And part of it was like, I didn't know anybody in it. And at least at that point in my life, I looked around the room and I was like, I don't think I want to get to know anybody in this class as well. Like, I remember constantly being annoyed about the questions that were asked or like just cringeworthy moments of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. So I sat in the back of the class to just kind of get in and get out as fast as I could. And for whatever reason, one day, I don't remember anything specific or unique about this day as I'm looking forward, facing the professor, taking notes, and starting to feel those annoyances build up in me as I look around at these people. It's as if, with a whisper, God comes into my heart and mind and brings a different thought. What if you saw these people the way I see them? 
Like, Matt, do you even begin to know, like, how many people in this room, like, they experience divorce in the last year? That growing up, divorce was a part of their picture. How many people here received a diagnosis in this last week, in this last season of life? How many people in this room maybe lost their job? How many people just found out that their boyfriend or girlfriend cheated on them and they're leaving them now? I was seeing, and I continue to, right, growth. People at a very worldly level. And yet God invites us to see other people created in his image the way that he sees those people, people in need of a savior. We need new eyes. That's one of the reasons I've loved um, that song, Good Ground, that we've been singing the last couple months because I feel like it's such a great prayer. It says, give me ears to hear when you're speaking. Give me eyes to see as you move. You made these hands to use for your glory. Set my feet to carry your truth. Lesson three, we risk because of trust. That the man that was freed from demon possession probably faced great risk in going home. There was probably so many things he did not know how they were going to go, but Jesus tells him to go, and out of his trust in Jesus, he says, I will go. Or if you think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4 who has a reputation in her community, but then she too is confronted with Jesus and goes to her home community to tell them that she thinks she's found the Messiah. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And as I've gotten older, and I know I'm not old, I have some gray hairs, something I am convicted about is that I believe I have become more convinced that I know how things are going to go. That when I try to tell one of my good friends about Jesus, and he shot me down or avoided invitations over and over again, I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to talk to him anymore because I know how this is going to go. And then I apply that to other people, other friends. I know how this is going to go. I've lived a lot, God. I've tried this a couple times. I think I've got it all figured out. Which the flip side should be as we get older, wouldn't we trust more and more because of what we've seen our God do, the ways that he's shown up, that he continues to do things that we could never ask or imagine? Wouldn't our trust only increase that he's a God who truly can do anything? Would we believe what Paul writes in Ephesians 3 now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Are we willing to take trust-informed risks with close friends, coworkers, family, asking God for eyes to see them the way he does and using discernment from his spirit? Last one is that all of this is best done as a community. We can set out like a bunch of lone wolves sometimes to try to bring God's community here on earth as it is in heaven. And he calls us to be in a people that does this, 
that participates in this. John 13, Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. This is leading up to him going to the cross, and he's prepping his disciples for his departure. And then he says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That one of, or if not the primary way that Jesus says to his disciples, how the world will know you belong to me, is your love for each other. That our love as believers for one another tells a story. It declares a testimony to others whom we belong to, whose love has transformed us. And this community of self-giving love for one another testifies, announces, proclaims whose kingdom we have received. And we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, but we have an opportunity harvest as a local church to tell a story to the communities that we are in about what our God is like and what he's done. And it starts by living this out together deepening our love for one another through Christ, seeing each other the way God sees us, pointing one another to Jesus. And that's one of the reasons I'm excited for community groups to start. It is not the answer to this, but it is a tool in the midst of this for training ground for us to deepen our love for one another and for Christ together. Each of us was created for community. We only find our truest sense of community through our union with God, and he has saved us into his body, his church. This starts with Jesus. And maybe you are here and you feel more like the man that Jesus confronts after he gets out of the boat where demon possession may not be your story, but you know what it's like to be in rebellion against God and to feel broken in despair, and that evil has wreaked its havoc in your life. Jesus' invitation to you first. If any of this community stuff sounds good, he says, it's only good if you have me. Would you come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. If that is you, the best thing you could do this morning is snag someone in the same row as you, snag one of the pastors or elders or staff here, and Ask them to pray with you because you know you need Jesus.